Hello, everyone. Welcome back. This is Julie Bates with the podcast, Training the Pointing Labrador, episode number 188. And today is going to be the third uh, in the series of building your dog. Uh, nothing new on the G update. Everything's everything is going along just kind of regular. Well, her, her and her sister just getting a little bit better every week. We've had a lot of snow and bitter cold. So fewer training days, and the dogs are kind of going stir-crazy. So maybe some of you that are suffering the same thing, whether you're listening to this during the winter and you can't hardly get outside without frostbiting the feet, or uh, you're just in a position that maybe you're ill and you can't get outside with your dog, and so dogs do go stir-crazy. It's a tough situation. It's just like having, you know, the uh, Olympic uh, uh, cross-country team uh, just stuck in a t one room for three weeks. Yeah, they, they probably it's, they'd explode in there, and it's just hard on the dog. So, uh, when you can, do what you can, uh, just for their uh, mental sanity and yours, <laughs> because this is a tough time. But fortunately, here in Colorado, even when we get hit pretty hard, we bounce back out of it. It's supposed to be 50 tomorrow, and all the snow will get real. Everything will get soft and melted, and then boom, we're supposed to get the coldest day yet so far. So. Interesting time, which is a, another good reason that I like to put out uh, more philosophical things for people, stuff to think about, just to kind of look at what you're doing and make sure it's exactly what you want, see if there's any room for tweaking things and make them a little bit better or whatever. So the first uh, in the series of building your dog was, again, just a quick review, uh, to make sure you have the right dog for what it is you want and for the conditions and environment that you have to bring this dog into, right? So don't go, geez, I just think those Afghan hounds are just beautiful or the uh, the uh, Siberian Huskies or the Blue Heelers. Oh, there's, I just really want one. And yet you don't have time and you don't have space and you don't know that there's certain things they really like to do, uh, really like to do. And if you don't give them an outlet for that, that they will create an outlet for their purpose that's not being really very acknowledged. So also that you have the space and the time and the interest and that once you, it's all cool in the beginning, but then it needs to go on for years. Basically the lifetime of the dog really, some element of interaction and development and maintaining and health and fitness and all that. So the first thing, the fairest thing you could do to yourself and to this animal is make sure that you have all the resources, time, interest uh, to give this dog what it, what it deserves. Again, if somebody just wants the companion thing and a dog around them and with them because they really like that and they don't want to be a dog trainer, that's excellent. And again, the, the rescue dogs in the pound where these animals aren't going to remain alive if somebody doesn't want them is very often an excellent place to go get that animal. And you're not really uh, keeping it out of its potential because its potential was basically the end of its life. But when you buy a nice, you know, dog with a really strong ingrained purpose, um, you kind of owe it to them to let them, just like you and I, well, I, you know, I've always trained dogs all my life. I always wanted to, even with all the other things I did. And nobody could ever stop me or they, people made fun of me and all that. But I love this and I do it. And thank goodness. And it makes me a more mentally stable and happy person, fulfilled. And our dogs have their own sets of those things. 
So it's important that we have that, okay? The second thing that we talked about was um, understanding uh, the degree to which you impact this dog. So when you start with a puppy, uh, particularly with a puppy, when you grow these puppies, you two get together kind of like two married people been together a long time or two people marooned on a desert island. You become very similar because that's just the nature of this connection and stuff. And so that a lot of, and generally what we do is impart ourselves to the dogs. And that can be a very, very positive thing. And it can be not as good as you'd like. So it would be, whenever I work with my people and, their, and dogs, I always talk about what the impact they're having on their dog and what their dog is reflecting back to them. That's a huge thing. So if you can acknowledge that, if you're the one working with your dogs, you know, if you're just a little slow about everything, your dog is going to be a little slow to respond. Just, just so much of that. So to the best of your ability, find out what you do, what you transfer over to these dogs and make sure it's something that you want. And if it's not, at least try to be mindful, write yourself notes, you know, gosh, if you're, you know, when I'm angry, don't go take it out on the dog, you know, or when I'm feeling terrible, don't go out there and make the dog feel terrible. Just, just, you know, or if I'm ADD, learn how to cope with what I'm doing so that I don't make my dog turn into the exact same kind of, you know, kind of disco ball thinking type of creature. So now the next thing, and it's, you know, all of these are just so critical. Um, the next thing in, in building this dog, we're going from puppy, you know, into the future of whatever it is you want, is teaching the dog to the best of its ability to think. Teaching the dog to think. Now, uh, no one has ever taught me this. No one has ever, it's indirectly, I've had some of the real good people say things that ultimately were just that. Teaching your dog to think. Now, they are not people. They do not reason. They do not think and respond the way that we do. Please, people, understand that. Just because your dog do something, does something, you can't assign, if I did that, it would mean this. Therefore, that's what it means for the dog. Dogs are not us, and they don't have words, and they don't have long uh, logical sequences of thoughts, they, as far as we know. They don't have that. So it takes a little bit of work and a little bit of thought and a whole lot of observation and a whole lot of patience to be able to, to understand what it means to teach your dog how to think. I was in, uh, I started various obedience classes and all the different classes when I was 10 years old and have been around the greatest trainers there are in the country that, that I know of. And rarely ever have I ever had anybody say, okay, we need your dog to teach your dog how to think for themselves, how to think in a certain situation, how to undertake the, the correct behavior on their own. We can do conditioned responses, right? Like, like for us in the retriever world, when you blow the whistle, they better sit, right? Whether they're on a dead run, whether they're four feet away or 400 feet away from you or further, and they hear that whistle, they are conditioned to sit. Without thought, don't think about it at all. Similarly, when we call them, you know, because we could be calling them from going across the street, uh, going off the cliff, going through the narrowly uh, wired barbed wire fence, 
when we call them, they have to come. That's a condition response. We don't want them to think at all. We want them to just give us the response. So that's a lot true of what we are training these dogs to do. When I say sit, you sit. When I say heal, you be at my side. So we need to be careful not to just think that that's the sum total of what dog training is, because it is not. That is teaching certain responses that we need. But that is only, only a part of this. And I'll go back to my tried and true using, because all of us either had kids or were kids. Using that is a good analogy. So for young people, okay, there are certain places where they need to just do the right thing, right? <laughs> That's just it, right? Don't go steal money uh, from the neighborhood convenience store. Just even if you need money, just do not do that. You know, do not kill somebody that you really don't like. You know, do not take someone's car because it's just really nice one and you wish you had it. There's etc. And and things about being decent and respectful to other people. There are things that we teach our young people, our our kids, that we were taught, you know, is this is what you do in this situation. You know, you call nine one one if you see someone's home on fire. Conditioned responses. But that's not the sum total of what we do when we raise kids or when we were raised, at least I hope not. Because one of the most powerful things you can do for a young human being is to give them the ability to think things through and to think for themselves. And I know some parents who always disagreed with me on that. They just wanted to do the, tell the kids what to think and then have them carry that on. Uh, didn't agree with that. We need to teach them to think for themselves. We need them not to just watch something on the television, right, and go, oh, my God, that's all true. I must, therefore, go do this. Right? We don't want them to do that. Most of us don't. So we need them to go, well, I don't know if that's true or not. Let me find out. Let me look at other places. Let me learn how to find the truth out instead of just listening to what someone told me. You know, we need them to learn to think for, you know, what is, is it best for me to go to college or would it be best for me to go to a trade school and, and learn something that I'm working with my hands because that's what I love the most, et cetera, et cetera. Hey, that's one of the best things we can do to young people is to give them the ability to think for themselves, to be okay by themselves, to cope with life when it gets difficult without someone there telling them what to do every step of the way. Now, dogs and people are not the same. We don't send our dogs off to live on their own. <laughs> so that the analogy ends right there. But it is the same thing. I have found with dogs. There are certain places where I got to have that response. If I call you, if I tell you to sit, whatever, if I ask you to go fetch that for me, bring it here, you need to do that. I don't want you to think about it, question it, decide what you, if you like it or not, just do that. But in most of the, uh, the work that we do, particularly the more advanced stuff, to have a dog learn to take responsibility for what's happening around it is a powerful, powerful thing. If you think about, for those of you, I'm going to go back to the hunting world now, but it's true of the, the herding dogs and the protection dogs and the cop dogs and all that stuff, all of them, right? But you take our hunting dogs, and let's take, let's take uh, upland hunting, right? So we're going into a, a field, and we are looking for, you know, these prize pheasant that are out there or whatever, prairie chickens. We're looking for something that's real important to us. Okay, the dog is supposed to go into the field and understands, you know, how to use the wind, right? It has to think about that. It uses the wind. It looks at places. It sees where birds would be and not be. 
It smells stuff. It feels stuff. They, I think they sense and do things I'm not aware of. But they go out in the field. Now, we've taught them, especially if you listen to my prior podcast, they got to stay within reasonable gun range, right? Without me blowing, I can't blow whistles. Now, I know everybody, well, I just buzz them on the collar. Well, you're, then you're doing all the work. You're doing the thinking for them. That, that's too far. Oh, don't go over there. You're doing, you, you, dogs can do that themselves. And I had an entire podcast on how you get that going. But so when you, they need to go out there and take responsibility for staying with you, hunting for you, not themselves, being good, figuring out what birds do, the difference between uh, the smell of where a bird sat for a, a little while last night or a bird sat for a little while right till we drove up or a bird is still sitting there. They, those are all different le- levels of scent. And they learn the difference and the experience guide. And that's where they think this, they understand it for themselves. They noodle it out. They're repeatedly subject to it. And they know, they, they make sense of what it is. And then they know, you know, when it lands over the, over the ridge and they didn't quite see when you shot it, long shot and it dropped, they got to go over the ridge and figure out where that is. If we've given them the chance to learn how to do that, they'll do it themselves. They don't need you over there telling them, go to, no, go look over here. So there's so much thinking. And in, in regular life, even more in regular life, where they learn to think about things. And I'll give you a real quick example of this. Um, you and your dog are walking up the steps, going to go into the house. Um, grandma's visiting. You know, your dog likes to go see her but can't. So, but you got to make sure the dog's under control. So when you step up to the door, the dog is like, ah, we're at a door. And the dog sits down. You open the door, waits for you to say, yeah, okay, go on in. In this case, sit down again. They're they're aware of this situation. They know what the expectations are. They know when a door is open, that's not ticket to run free. Okay? You've taught them how to think about this stuff. Hey, when the door opens, dude, you're not first in. And... That way you can go into the house. We're not going to have the dog jumping all over grandma. Everybody's okay. And I, there's a, you know what I'm talking about, just good manners. If there's somebody brought a new baby into the house, if your dog learns, oh, there's people here, I need to rein myself in. I need to go sit somewhere and wait until someone asks me. Can they learn that? Oh, for heaven's sake, yes, they can do that if you've taught them. And then if you've taught them this is a situation and this is what you do, you don't have to do all the work of always telling them and always reminding them. And when they can take more and more responsibility for their own actions, understanding what is necessary, and then doing it themselves, when they can do things like that, that is an infinitely more trainable dog and also just enjoyable dog to have. Everybody really likes those dogs when they're around. Those are dogs who take responsibility for their actions and a lot of what they do when it's not one of those conditioned responses that we absolutely require. And where that starts is with the puppies. Now, can an eight-week-old dog think like that? I don't think so. But when we give them opportunities to understand, uh, I would say, cause and effect, Okay, when we start that early where we teach them, hey, wait, stop and let's take in what's happening here before you just go willy-nilly doing something, then they acquire that habit of doing that. And the door, the gate, the kennel door, the crate door, all of that is an excellent example. If if you have your dog that's in a crate or a kennel or confined in some way, okay, the back door even, 
and you open the door, what does that, what's on that dog's mind? Out, I want out, I want out, right? That, they're not thinking. They are just exerting their will. That is not thinking. So if we take a puppy and it wants out, we let it out, and it wants in, we let it in, and it wants this, and it, and oh, look, he really wants out of the crate. Boom, you open the door and it comes smashing out, and the dog's right, oh, look, he's so happy to be out. And the dog is just exerting its will the whole time. And so the more it exerts its will, the more that that kind of thinking is strengthened. And you're not developing the kind of thinking where the dog goes, okay, wait, rein myself in. Let's see what's happening here. And the crate is a great example. And I hope most people do use a crate, for, especially with a puppy. Makes house training easier, makes travel, all that stuff easier. So that's a, per, and you can start with eight, maybe not eight week old, all right? But 10, 12 weeks, we're going to start getting that. When I open the crate door, or the kennel door, or the back door, but when crate doors are nice, because it's very clear, there's nothing but the door, and the dog on one side and you on the other. Teach them, when I open the door, you do not come out. Now, when they're little, that's real easy, right? You just keep them from coming out with your hand. Don't be in there loving, petting them. Just keep them in there. You know, I have your stay or sit or crate or I don't care. Well, some clue that means you're just in the crate, stay in there. And then once the puppy has settled down and yielded to your requirement of remaining there, then okay or whatever you want, then let them come out. So when you begin to make that a habit, then the dog, when they see you coming and they're on the other side of a fence or a door or the crate or whatever, they know I got to wait. I can't just come exerting my will, smooshing out, knocking everything over, tipping the water and the crate over, all that stuff. I wait and then I come out. Now that's a real simple example that you can do in all kinds of places. And I'm not just talking about this hard obedience. Another one that I really, a great example of this, and, and I'm emphatic about this, is when I go on a walk with any puppy of any size, anywhere, anytime, right? I get, the first couple of days, they can walk in front of me and get in my feet a little bit because I don't want to just start right off with this stuff. I want them to start loving this stuff and going out with me. But in very short order, don't ever walk in front of me, ever. You cannot tell me any situation in the world where that dog walking directly in front of your feet stepping is a positive good thing. And a lot of times dogs do that because it, it's sort of a, it's really kind of almost a dominance thing. I'm in front and they make, can make you stop or veer or move to the side. I don't think it's a conscious thought out thing. It's just something they kind of do. You step in front of everybody when you're the alpha dog. But if you're a hunter, you cannot have a dog. You're sitting there carrying a loaded weapon. Granted, you should have safety on, but you're carrying a loaded weapon, right? And you cannot have a dog that's going to just feel comfortable flying by right in front of you, Mach 2 or even slow. No, nothing in front of you. No tripping. You know, you're looking up, seeing this bird coming up, and the dog gets in front of you. And, you know, there's, that stuff can happen. So the wherever you are moving in front of you is never, ever a place for a dog. Now, it, those of you that run with dogs or bike with dogs, it's really true there. If you have a dog just cross a paw in front of you while you're running along the street, maybe on a trail right on the street, but right by the street, you just get tripped. 
you're looking at the cars, making sure everything's cool, and this dog puts just a paw in front of your step, and, and I know that because I've gone down with that. And dogs, my dogs learn very early on, <laughs> now, do not step in front of her. But they also learn that, the ones that I raise when they're a puppy. And I start off just moving them to the side, and if they keep doing it, they, it becomes more and more unpleasant until they decide, you know, I just don't need to be in front of her. So a lot of times when I get people's dogs in and we're going out through the field starting to, some of the field training, and that dog just, it's just in front of me the entire time. So we're not doing, we're not, the only thing we're learning is, hey, don't walk in front of me instead of all the cool stuff we should be learning about out in the field. So obviously they've probably never done the walk and they've never been out in the field and the dog clearly exerts its will far more than it thinks. So that's a real good place to teach a dog. When we're together, be aware of where I am and where I'm moving. Be, so now you see they're having to think about this so they don't cross in front of you. They are fully capable. Every dog I've ever known in my life, brilliant and the other end of that spectrum, can learn don't walk in front of you. And that's one of the things I feel every single dog in the world should be taught because it's very bad for having a dog crossing around in front of you. My little tiny wiener dog has learned that. You know, she's learned, and it took a little while because she just thought she was so adorable that certainly she could go anywhere she wanted. And it was like, well, I can't. <laughs> I'm just, I'll go around behind her if I want to go to the other side or out front, but I'm not going to walk in front of her. And she's a little tiny thing, you know, and I don't use force with her. But she has learned on wiener dog on pleasant level, don't walk in front of her ever, ever, ever. And so that's another very simple place where we teach dogs to take responsibility for their own actions and that I'm not going to move out of their way and step around them and pet them and all that kind of stuff all the time. So there's another place where we take little puppies and we can teach them uh, to take responsibility, to think. Now, one of the places people like to tell me, oh, I do that, I do that, and I've heard this example a hundred times if I've heard it once. At dinner time, I make them sit down, <laughs> and then I put their bowl in some place, either near, far, whatever. They put the bowl somewhere, and they sit there and wait until I let them go. And that's their idea of making the dog take responsibility for its own actions and all that. And, you know, that's not a bad thing to do at all. There's no downsides to that. However, it is doing something for a reward. That's what that is. It's like, I sit here on my head if I need to. I want dinner. And so they will do whatever they have figured out you want to go get dinner. What I'm talking about is doing what you want without some tangible reward, like food, okay? Or even a retreat, a fun, a happy retreat for those guys. They're doing something, the dog that doesn't walk in front of you doesn't get a reward for knocking, not walking in front of you. Their reward is that, that you are pleasantly walking together and it's completely enjoyable and there's no consequences for stupid stuff. That's the reward. So a dog that, uh, a dog that doesn't bust through the kennel door or bust through the crate door when you open it up, the reward is you don't get me smashing the crate door back in your face when you're trying to smash me with it coming out understand that I'm not talking this in a brutality deal right but people always read that wrong but the reward is this will be pleasant for both of us you will wait until I'm ready for you to come out and you won't knock stuff all to pieces you will just come out 
So the reward is the pleasantness, the mutual respect for one another, and their awareness of their role in this situation. And you can start that stuff early. And it needs to be not a reward base, so they're doing it to get something, but they're doing it because it's what's the relationship between the two of you. Now, um, I, I, for the retriever people, I'm going to use the, uh, the happy bumper thing. It, if you don't know what a happy bumper is, when you're doing, you know, obedience and force fetch and, and the retriever, you know, bear down mathematical problem kind of work, a lot of times at the end of it or before you do it, you throw a happy bumpers. In other words, they don't have to be steady. You just, hey, hey, and you throw it, and they run out and get it, bring it back to you, and it relaxes them and does all that kind of stuff before you start something that's going to be demanding mentally or physically or whatever. So people start using that uh, to, uh, to get certain responses out of dogs, and you have to be a little bit careful about that because it's a kind of a mindless way, maybe to start something out to get them relaxed, it might be okay. But be careful about just crazy, mindless, I'm gonna come smashing into you, uh, kind of ways to, to end um, some things where you've really been making them think. You know, like the force fetch, where they gotta think and understand what you're demand asking, and they, they, you gotta be careful about just making it all, all crazy at the end. When you've done something that's on a young dog that's kind of hard, you know, the obedience stuff and stuff like that, if you need to get them brought back up a little bit, then throw them a happy bumper, one or two maybe, and then end again with them calmly sitting and getting their mind settled back down so that they remain more in the thoughtful mode than the whoo mode because that makes the wild and crazy I don't have to think I'll just run out there and spit flying and and we don't want to leave that as the last thing on their mind frankly you really don't you want to leave them with something thoughtful so if you have to do that to bring them back up because that something was really hard or they kind of got they just kind of had a hard time with it go ahead and throw a happy bumper or two make them heal it and then do a little bit of just pleasant thoughtfulness to leave their mind in a functional thinking mode especially when you're learning things. When they're learning things, the state of mind, just like it is for you and me, is so important. So, so important. So for Anna, let me just say this. So when you do throw a happy bumper, you know, they don't have to be steady. You get them excited. You throw it some direction. They run out there and get it. Now when they come back, I don't know, and I know, oh golly, people and puppies, they get down on the ground and they get the high squeaky voice and they go down on puppy level, which is very subservient as the dog's getting older. You're subservient. And the dog, little puppy learns to just, oh, I'm going to run in there and they're going to rub me all over night. They just smash into you, right? They just smash into you. <laughs> they get bigger and they smash into you because you want them to really like you and be happy about retrieving, right? And they smash into you. Oh, wow. Okay. So there's nothing there but that crazy thinking. And a, a little bit of crazy thinking, there's a place for it. But it's not the be-all, end-all of stuff. So when you're teaching little retrievers to retrieve, and, and one, the I don't see happy bumpers for our little puppies. First, we just throw whatever so that they retrieve. And when they begin to enjoy that and do it and get kind of excited and passionate about it, then... Then, when they are pretty passionate about it, then we start drawing down on the demand. 
You don't just never draw down on the ma- on the demand. Um, so we want them excited to love it. Got to have that first. Absolutely. If that takes three months to get that, then take three months. Usually it takes three, four days or three, four weeks at most. And they're very excited about it. Okay, now we're going to hold them and make them wait a little bit. And we're going to throw it, let it hit the ground, and then send them. Right? Because we can. And because we want them to start thinking about this, not being wild and crazy with no thoughts at all. I get so many of those dogs in. I'll throw a bumper and they come running back and smash into me. Well, now I know to look for it, right? So I got the, they meet the foot when that happens. I just run into the bottom of my foot, but, and quickly learn, oh, do not smash into her. So that means us retrieving has only been fun, 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 and they've never had to think about their actions. But if you start out eight weeks, you know, 10 weeks, they're retrieving good, 11 weeks, okay, now we're going to hold them, throw it, send them on their name, get them back. It should be happy coming back. But when they come back, you have a little rope or something, something on them, get their little collar, get a hold of them. Don't take the bumper right out of their mouth. You know, encourage holding on to it for later on. But they don't smack into you. Just bring them over to your whichever side you're going to have them on. Sit down. Oh, so good. Then then don't be in a hurry to take the bumper if you can because, again, teaching them to hold on to it is good. And then remove it from their mouth. Ah, oh, good dog. Maybe do one more. And then as they get, understand this more and more and more, then we can crunch down more. Okay, now you're just going to sit here. Not even, I'm not holding you to see. You're just going to sit here. I'm holding on to your collar. I'm going to throw it. Wait till I send you. Go get it. Come back over here on this side of me. And see if you can get them in to sit down. I mean, if you putting control on them like that makes them lose desire to retrieve, stop the control. But if you have a dog with a high desire to retrieve, put the, the control on. In other words, make them think about their actions and what they're doing and show them what it is you would like them to do. And then that can eventually become the habit. And now you have a dog, one, that already kind of knows what's expected on a retrieve, and two, thinks about where you are and where it needs to be and that it can't go flying by 10 feet behind you, and now we're turning around. Or what I've heard a lot of people, I just ignore them if they don't come back to me. Okay, I, I would liken that to my teenagers going out drinking. They're, they're 14, and they're going out drinking every Friday night with their friends, so I'm not even going to speak to them. Yeah, I don't. Not sure that's gonna work. Um, not. I'm not sure what the motivation is. So when a dog doesn't come back to me, then I'll put on a little cord of some kind and have them come back to me. Not unpleasantly or anything. Just like here's where you go. You go out, and you come back, with or without it. But you go out and you come back, and I don't crunch him at all. I just don't let him commit a really bad crime. I just don't let him do it, and I don't let him fly ten feet behind me. And I don't prevent it by doing it up against the fence so that as soon as I step away from the fence, they're still going to go flying back behind me. I'll just use that little cord. And again, that's easy. The criteria is if you start to drop their passion and desire to work, stop the control or back it off. But when the passion and stuff is there, then put reasonable control on there. And as they get more mentally capable of grasping things, then you um, can ask more. Like, all right, sit. You can't wriggle around or you can't make noise. You can't do anything. Just sit. Hold on. You wait. Sometimes it'll be two seconds. Sometimes it'll be five seconds. And then I'll send you. And then you come right back to me. And we, 
and you begin to make them accountable for their actions. But really what you're doing is making, making this youngster be aware that they have a job here and that they have to they have to do certain things. And not because you're telling them what to do and making them do it. That's how you teach. But because that's their job. And so they have to see where you are and go to you and to your left side, right side, whatever side. And they had to sit down. And this is all so fun, but that's what they need to do. And it's their responsibility, not yours. You don't get the cord on and for the next three months drag them back. First you drag them back a little bit. And then when they, now you, when they still like to retrieve, now I'm going to jerk you a little unpleasantly. So you, to avoid the jerk, you just come back to me. And you do that a few times and then they just come back to you. And pretty soon we just done with the cord. And we have transferred the responsibility over to this youngster to think about what they're doing and to do it right. Just like they have to think about what they're doing coming out of their crate. They have to think about what they're doing going into the crate. They can't just smash in there, knock the water thing over. and it hit. It just They can just wait to be told the to kennel. And then they go in there and then you close it. And then if you open it, they don't come out until you task them. So, one, that's very pleasant. Two, that's not being a jerk, over-controlling person. What it is is teaching that dog to take responsibility for their own actions and to think about the situation and the things to do. And as you get into more advanced training, the obedience and the force fetch and the handling, it's the same thing. Ultimately, you want them to know that they've got to take the responsibility and they've got to you know, figure some of this stuff out and do this stuff. They got to make the choice about getting into the water or not on a water blind. They've got to make these choices. And if you've given them the ability to think about things and understand what you're doing and realizing that they need to read the situation and try to do the right thing that they've been taught, then you have a dog that's not beat down, forced by just by golly, you know, incredible fear that they better do this or else, but they're taught that they're a part of it and that they need to do, make the effort themselves. You're not there to tell them everything to do perfect every time. And an example a little further on, and then I'm going to draw this one to an end. When you run marks, just say you run single marks with dogs. And, and if you, uh, you know, if you just have wingers and stuff, that makes it hard. But if you have somebody out throwing for you, and they throw a mark, and your dog runs out there, doesn't really get to the right area. They're hunting short or over to the left and stuff. And and be careful if your dog can handle and you're doing this stuff that you always handle. I'll just handle you right to the mark, you know, because I can. Neener, neener, I can do this. So you didn't find it. I'll help you over there. Right, now the dog, and you do that frequently. And if you have, you know, if you have like wingers and stuff, that can be hard if you don't have somebody out there. But the ones now, they have the little quackers. They even have the hay hayers and stuff. But what you want to do is sometimes if you need to handle, handle. But what if you do that, then the dog is taught, hey, just run out there where you think it is. Because if you're wrong, they'll just tell you. They'll tell you right where it is. So then what's, what's the driving force for bearing down and trying harder to mark that and find that? None. None. It's way easier if you just go out wrong and then somebody blow, blow the whistle and cast you over to it. Way easier. So you take all the heart and soul and desire out of that. And they don't get better at marking because they don't have to. But if on marks instead, they, you set up marks, obviously within the range of what this dog can do. And if they have a big hunt, let them have a big hunt. Finally, if it's not working, 
then have somebody hop up or throw another bird or help them in some way so that it isn't you doing it for them. And then don't go repeat it, all right? Don't go repeat it because that's not, they don't learn to think with that. Only if there's some really special concept they needed to learn on this deal would you repeat that. But generally when they clearly didn't mark, repeating it doesn't make them a better marker. So don't overly help dogs on marks and things like that. Let them have a big old long hunt. They will start to get way better at marking things if they aren't helped out all the time. So that's another one where put the responsibility back on the dog. You may sit there for two or three minutes. I've done longer than that. Those dogs are going to figure out, I'm not helping you. you got to work this out. Unless they're obviously, it's not going to work at all. And then you have another bird thrown or somebody hop up and back over there. But the real point of that is teaching the dog to take the responsibility for it and not you. And that's a hard thing for some trainers to do. And it's hard for people to do with puppies. I don't understand it. You know, I, when I had two kids and I would be asking them questions and, and making them tell me why they thought something or did something. No, I was not a horrific mom. But I just liked their minds to be working all the time. So if you ever ask any of my their adults, they ask them a question, you will get a three-paragraph completely clear answer so that they, because they've thought about that. And so they do real well on jobs. People really like them because, again, they take responsibility for their actions and their responsibilities, and they don't expect everyone to do everything for them. And same way with dogs. Everybody likes that dog better if it's trying hard to do the work on its own without you having to be over-controlling and telling it what to do. So in building this super neat dog, and it, I used all retriever stuff because I know it's mostly retriever people listening to me, but my wiener dog, right, this, the great rabbit hunter, same approach with her, same approach. She had to figure out cactus on her own. She came back in the beginning a few times with cactus in her face because we have cactus on our dry parts and we have and cactus on the top of her back. I don't, she had to have rolled to get that. So now she can go hunt the same areas and not come back with any cactus. <laughs> so, I, you know, she learned. She, I didn't go out there and say, well, we can't go over there, there's cactus. I don't want anything to happen. I, I wouldn't put her in an unsafe situation, but I had to let this little dog learn. You've got to be aware of your environment. Even when you're fanatically going after a bunny, you still have to be aware of your environment. And she did become that way. And so she'll be safer and less injured than other dogs who have never been exposed to that. Little guys, I mean. So it works for all dogs, all situations. Central Park dogs, there's things that they need. You've got to give, let them, not let other dogs attack them. Do not let them, I do not apply this to let the dominant, you know, let them get in a fight and see who's dominant. No, I do not do that. <laughs> then I'm not thinking. It's like I'm not going to put my dog in danger to have their eye bitten out by some dog to see who's the most dominant. This does not apply there. I'm talking about in their brains, making them talk, take responsibility. And the more of that that you can do on these young dogs, the more you will always do that because that is a, that's a more of an equal partner with you because they do take responsibility. They're not a mindless thing just doing what they're told out there and getting away with whatever they can because they don't know why they would why should you try hard you know they're just gonna they're just gonna etch a sketch you anyway so i i hope that that's wow that's a really important thing um with dogs so i hope at least give it a little bit of thought think about it and watch your dog and see when they're thinking and when they're just exerting their will um and if you're happy with that 
So that's today's. Got another big storm coming uh, this week. Another real cold day. So maybe I'll have another early podcast. But I hope uh, I hope people take that to heart a little bit. I'll probably have probably have one more on this, and then you know move on to. Uh, we're getting ready to get into the competitive season, so maybe we'll get going that way. So I appreciate your listening. I hope everybody's doing well, staying healthy, safe, and warm. And uh, G and I will be back soon.